Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, Project Zero breaks the chain. We share some stories from our mischievous high school past, and malware as a service gets busted. Plus, your great questions, a packed roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 296 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode on December 8th, 2016. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, Ting, DigitalOcean, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. My name, oh, wait, hold on, stop the whole thing. We got to tell you about the live stream. We got to tell you about all our downloads. It's all made possible by Scale Engine. Go over to scaleengine.com. Now I can tell you that my name is Chris, and joining us every single week like a machine is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hello, Alan. Hello, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hello, sir. So I see that the Tetris lamp has been properly configured. It is in the go position. That must mean sure. we have all of our boxes checked. The pre-flight checklist is complete, and we are ready to go. Uh, I like the show you put together. I read through it a little bit before we started. I was just thinking after last week's episode, we've had like two or three weeks where we didn't talk about Project Zero. And then look what Alan Jude does. Well, it's It's been on the... Uh the list of things yeah. I need to talk about. Isn't that funny how it while, builds up? <laughs> the story was so big, I didn't have time to digest it the last couple of weeks. So I'm and, liking uh, this. So I managed to uh, make some time this week. Add a boy. Uh, by doing it the night before. <laughs> Good thinking. Good thinking. So now we're going to yep. finally break down Project Zero, Breaking the Chain. I like the, I like the title there. Break it down. Uh, so this one is, um, uh, like we said, Google Project uh, Zero. Uh, been working on basically trying to stop some flash vulnerabilities. So they say, uh, much as we'd like it to be true, it seems undeniable that we'll never fix all security bugs just by looking for them. Uh, one of the most productive ways of dealing uh, with this fact is to implement exploit mitigations. That is, having systems in place so that if an exploit uh, turns out to be in your code, uh, it's locked down so it can't do very much, right? This is the whole idea behind sandboxing and so on. It's like, yeah. you can't ever get the program perfect, so if there is a problem... Uh, make sure it can't do too much damage. Uh, so Project Zeros considers mitigation work just as important as finding vulnerabilities. Sometimes we get uh, we can get our hands dirty, such as when we helped Adobe and Microsoft uh, build flash mitigations. Uh, sometimes we can only help uh, indirectly via publishing our research and giving the vendors an incentive to add their own mitigations instead. Uh, so say uh, this blog post is about an important mitigation uh, exploit mitigation technology they developed uh, for Chrome on Windows. Uh, it will detail many of the challenges I face when trying to get this mitigation released to protect end users of Chrome. Uh, it's recently shipped to users of Chrome starting uh, only on Windows 10 with Chrome M54. Okay. Uh, and ended up blocking the sandbox escape from an exploit chain being used uh, in the wild a couple of weeks later. Well, that's, so M54, only on Windows 10, though. It's interesting yeah, so a lot of Chrome features why, start there. They'll explain why only available on Windows 10 as we go through the story. Oh, great. Yeah, so uh, they explain you know, uh, what was happening there. So, uh, so this is, it's possible to lock down a sandbox such as uh, Chrome's pretty comprehensive, uh, the one Chrome has, comprehensively using restricted tokens. However, one of the big problems in Windows is locking down access to system calls. 
on Windows, you have both the normal Windows NT uh, system calls and the Win32K system calls for accessing the graphical interface, uh, which combined uh, represents a significant attack surface. Like if you look at their website, I think there's like 400 syscalls in the NT kernel yeah. and over 1,000 in the Win32K kernel. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, while the NT system calls do have exploitable uh, vulnerabilities now and again, for example, issue 865, it's uh, nothing compared to Win32K. Uh, for just one research project alone, Project Zero found 31 issues, uh, and this isn't counting many of the font issues that other people at Project Zero have found hmm. and hundreds of other issues found by non-Google researchers. Uh, much of Win32K's problems comes from its history. In the first versions of Windows NT, almost all code responsible for the windowing system existed in user mode. It basically ran as a normal application. Uh, unfortunately for 90s-era computers, this wasn't exactly good for performance. So starting with Windows NT 4, Microsoft moved a significant portion of that user mode code into the kernel. Sure. Becoming a driver, win32k.sys. Um this was the time before Slammer, before Blaster, before the infamous trustworthy computing memo, which focused Microsoft uh, on thinking about security first. Uh, perhaps some lone voice spoke for security that day, uh, but was overwhelmed by performance considerations. We'll never know for sure. However, what it did do was make Win32K a large, fragile mess, which seems to have persisted to this day. The attack surface, this large and fragile, uh, exposes, um, could not be removed from any sandbox process. So say um, that'll change with the release of Windows 8. Hmm. Microsoft introduced the system call disable policy, which allows a developer to completely block access to the Win32K system call table. Uh, while it doesn't do anything for normal system calls, uh, the fact that you could eliminate over a thousand uh, Windows 32K system calls, many of which have serious security issues, uh, could be critical to reducing the attack surface. So if you know your program is not going to use any of them, you could just say, let's not. We'll just block access, and you know my programs shouldn't ever be using them. So if it is, something's gone wrong. That's an interesting idea. However, no application in a default Windows installation uses this policy. Uh, it's said to have been introduced for non-GUI applications, such as when you're building a, an app on uh, Azure. <laughs> uh, and uh, using it for something as complex as Chrome doesn't uh, wasn't going to be easy. The process of shipping uh, Win32K lockdown required a number of architectural changes to be made to Chrome. This included replacing the GDI-based uh, font code to, to render fonts on Windows with uh, a different API, Microsoft's Direct Write Library, so that it wouldn't have to use Win32K. After around two years of effort, uh, sorry, of effort, uh, Win32K lockdown uh, was shipped by default in Chrome. Of course, this still left the problem of plugins like Flash and PDFium, um, both of which run via the PP API. And uh, cannot just have access to Win32K turned off uh, because, you know, Flash depends on it for a bunch of things. Yeah. Uh, this would seem a pretty large weak point. Flash uh, was not only the... Uh, Flash has not had the best security track record, uh, making the likelihood of Flash becoming the remote code execution vector very high. Combine that with the relative ease of finding and exploiting Win32K uh, vulnerabilities, and you've got a perfect storm. It would seem reasonable to assume that real attack, uh, attackers are finding Win32K vulnerabilities and using them to break out of restrictive sandboxes, including Chrome's using Flash uh, as the RCE vector. The question uh, was whether that was true. 
uh, the first real confirmation of this came uh, from the hacking team breach. If you remember that back in July of 2015, uh, this is the Italian company that sold exploits to whoever would pay them. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the dumped files was an unfixed Chrome exploit, which then used Flash as the remote code execution vector and a Win32K exploit to escape the sandbox. Ah, oh, nice. Uh, well, both vulnerabilities uh, were fixed... I came upon the idea that perhaps I could spend some time to implement the lockdown policy for the PP API and eliminate the entire attack chain. Uh, for a better, more robust solution, I needed to get uh, changes made to Flash. I didn't have access to the Flash source code. However, Google does have a good working relationship with Adobe, and uh, he used this to get the necessary changes implemented. It turned out that there was a Pepper API, uh, which did all that was needed to replace the GDI font handling in Flash, uh, pp flash font file uh, unfortunately this was only implemented on linux uh, so he says however i was able to put together a proof of concept of a windows implementation of that pp api and then uh, jing jang at adobe uh, got a full implementation working for flash in chrome uh, so with some work most of the code in flash that needed the win32 api could be replaced by using the pepper api to have chrome do something you know a different way um this is from this point i could enable the win32k lockdown for plugins and after uh much testing everything seemed to be working so yay right yay uh, except uh then he tried a drm protected video <laughs> oh drm oh drm you bastard yes uh, while encrypted video worked, any flash video file which required output protection, such as the uh, you know high bandwidth digital copy protection or HDCP, would not. Uh, so still, this presents a problems as videos, along with video games, are some of the most you know the the things that still use flash. You know, people sure. stop using flash to make websites and they make games and video players. and video yeah that's, that's what flashes are still it's around pretty for. much the only reason anybody wants flash mm-hmm. is because it does a better job at video mm-hmm. and making games uh so in testing this turned out to also affect the widevine plugin uh for the encrypted media extension for chrome so it wasn't just flash having this problem it was widevine stopped working in chrome when you tried to play drm video as well mm, okay uh widevine uses the pp api under the hood uh, so not fixing this issue would break all HD content playback. Whoops. <laughs> yeah, this is why they have to do so much testing before they can ship a change. They say, the ideal way of fixing this would be to implement a new API in Chrome, which exposed enabling HDCP, then get Adobe and Widevine to use that implementation. However, it turns out it's not that easy. Uh, it turns out that the Adobe DRM and Widevine teams are under greater restrictions than normal development teams. After a discussion with my original contact at Adobe, they didn't have access to the DRM code for Flash. Uh, the developer from Google was able to get a meeting with Widevine, because they're part of Google, and the Adobe DRM team, but in the end, he decided to uh, go it alone and implement redirection for these APIs as part of the sandbox code. So... The big problem is that most people at Adobe don't have access to this code. It's mm. not clear that Adobe still employs anybody that wants to work on this code. In, in, uh, 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 that's I'm just um, I'm uh, wow. That is so that is so egregious to me. Like that is that is so negligent. Well, it's well, it's not so much that. It's literally that you know the they 
in order to for the DRM to be effective, it has to be secret, right? Because that's all it depends on. It's not actually strong crypto because they have to give away the key. So it's all based on obfuscation. So they have to keep the number of people that are allowed to look at the code as small as possible. Oh, um, so you're saying because it's security through obscurity, they, that's... They can't just let any developer at Adobe have access to the code. Otherwise, the DRM would be broken already. Somebody would. I don't know it. if that makes me feel better, but at least I follow the logic. I follow your logic there. It just doesn't make me feel any better. <laughs> well, and also, it's like... Uh, I imagine to make any change to the DRM, they would have to get it audited and approved by, you know, the MPAA again or something in order for that to be able to be used to publish movies or something. Sure. Okay. I'm guessing there's all kinds of paperwork. Yeah, that that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So the Chrome developer just created a compatibility layer that brokers any calls to Win32K uh, to do the HDCP stuff into a separate process where they haven't blocked the Win32K API. So everything is blocked except for this call to HDCP and a couple other ones they needed, and those go out to a separate process that's outside the sandbox that can, I see. can make the calls. Hmm. So he says, uh, from the first patch submitted uh, in September of 2015 to the final patch that came out in June of this year, it took almost 10 months of effort to come up with a shipping mitigation. Uh, the fact that it's had its first public moment of success, and who knows how many non-public ones, shows that it was worth implementing this mitigation. Uh, and it goes on to talk a bit about how uh, they do split A-B testing and so on and like rolling this out to the early, you know, people that manually subscribe to like the beta and, and even earlier channels of Chrome, uh, but then start pushing it out to actual regular users, maybe unsuspecting users, uh, and keeping track of, you know, how often it crashes or has an error versus the people that haven't updated yet. And, you know, if there's no change, then everything's fine. But if all of a sudden all those users are complaining they can't play the encrypted video or DRM video, then it's going to be a problem, right? Yeah. Hmm. So I found that interesting too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they say, in the latest version of Windows 10, the anniversary edition, Microsoft has implemented a Win32K filter, which makes it easier to reduce the attack service without completely disabling all the system calls, which might uh, have sped up the development. So it pairs this, down. Uh, new version, you can just list which ones are allowed or which ones aren't allowed instead of it being on or off. Okay. So they could deny everything except for the HDCP one, and then they wouldn't have needed to do a bunch of this work. So Okay, so they turned some stuff to off by default, pared down your available options, and so it's well, a smaller no, attack so surface. On Windows 10, and each application has the ability to say, I promise never to use these APIs and block me if I try. So Chrome could say, I'm not going to use anything except for these ones to enable HDCP, and then uh, Windows will take care of blocking it's, any attempt it's, to use It's it. a nice feature to be had for sure, and I'm glad vendors like Google are on top of it enough to take care of uh, and take advantage of it. But one of the classic problems with Windows is the legacy software that never gets updated to take well, advantage of the new features. That, but even if I'm releasing brand new software today, I have to support people running Windows 7, so right. I'm just going to not use this API rather than have the program work differently on Windows 10 than it does yeah. on Windows 7. Well, and it truly depends, like, what is, like, 80% of your user base on XP 7 and 8, and only 10% of it's on Windows 10? Where are you going to spend your time? The XP percent should be pretty small now. I hope but. so. But you get my drift. Like, where are you going to spend yeah. your development time? Exactly. So, and, and it, it didn't, it's not even just Windows 10. It's Windows 10 Anniversary Edition. So people that haven't updated right. their Windows 10. <laughs> right. Good point. Good point. Uh, yeah. So maybe in five or 10 years, we'll be to the point where we can actually start using this API. Yeah. 
Uh, and, and and by that, maybe we'll have a good majority of developers who have updated. That's like the best case mm-hmm. scenario, really. Yeah. I mean, I don't mean to be I don't mean to crap on it because there are certain high profile applications like Chrome and Firefox that can take advantage of it today if they choose to. So it's a good thing. I'm not trying yeah. to say it's a bad thing. I'm just saying, you know, uh, it's not necessarily Microsoft's fault. It's like Microsoft would really love it if everybody switched to Windows 10 Anniversary Edition right now. Right, right. Yeah. I, on the other hand, don't plan to give up my Windows 7 anytime soon. It's going to hold Mostly on to that. because I don't think I'll, I, I will stop using Windows altogether. Right. That's I, always I, kind of been my seven. thought, too, is this Skype machine that you're on that we use for this show to get high-definition Skypes, Windows 7, and I don't... I just I just foresee hoping that Skype for Linux is in better shape by the time I'm ready to switch off, by the time it's dead, whichever, I'm you know, or replace it with a completely different mechanism. And we have in some of the, you know, some of the other shows we use Jitsi and to, 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 to a lot of success and it doesn't care what OS we're under. So it's getting there. It's getting there. But there's still people out there with workloads that require Windows. And a lot of them are still sitting on seven. Some of them are on eight. So. Yeah. Well, because you have to remember there's like seven, eight, eight dot one. 10, 10 anniversary edition, and then there'll be another one soon. So this is uh, this fix that they did, though. This is I a, love that. Well, why, did, why is the anniversary edition not called 10.1? Right, right, yeah. Like, how are we supposed to keep track of the difference between 10 and 10 yeah, anniversary Yeah, I, I know. Uh, so this Win32K filter, which Edge uses already, for example, uh, this, this is like, this is an interesting approach because it's like, well, we've built in well, all this of is, this stuff. This is, you know, this approach is kind of similar to what OpenBSD's Pledge API does, allowing you to disable certain system calls. Well, it also, I mean, it also reminds me of AppArmor to a degree, too, because AppArmor functions sort of like this application is, exp- or in, in some degree, SE Linux, but AppArmor is a better analogy here. This, this application is expected to only do these things. Uh, we have set it up to only do these things, and if it tries to go outside these constraints, it gets blocked. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not a totally new concept. It's just an interesting... Uh, top-down approach, whereas if you were building an operating system today, you would build for this. This would be something, right. you know what I mean? Like, this would this would be right. built it's, in. It's kind of even just the difference between FreeBSD's Capsicum, which is for each, uh, you know, file handle you have open, you're saying, I, this one's only for reading or only for writing or, or, you know, each different thing it's going to do, whereas with Pledge, it's like, well, in order to not have to rebuild these applications, we're just going to be like, these are the system calls we need. Don't let us do anything outside of that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Huh. All right. Well, that's pretty interesting. Any other notes or thoughts on that story? Uh, no. There's lots more detail in the original Google post if you're interested. Look at Project Zero that. Go. I'm glad we got a chance to break that down, Mr. Jude. Mm-hmm. Let me break down our first sponsor this week, and that is Ting. Go to techsnap.ting.com. You'll get $25 off a device, or you get $25 in service credit. And if you're savvy... I just crunched the numbers. Think about this. If you only pay for what you use, for your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes, and each line's only $6, well, $25 is probably going to get you quite a ways. It paid for more than my first month. Check them out at techsnap.ting.com. GSM and CDMA services that are available for you. I, I get notes from people that are just absolutely floored by that. One carrier that offers both networks with really great customer service where you get to speak to a human being, unlock devices. You own them outright when you buy them. They don't stand in the way of your Android updates. They have amazing prices. SIM cards that start at $9. Feature phones that start at $20. 
twenty dollars. That's that's a great opportunity if you want to give somebody a phone for safety or just a backup line and stuff it in the stocking. That's an amazing price. And then they go all the way up the entire smartphone line. Or if you just want to buy it from Apple or the Google Play Store and bring it to Ting, you can do that too. And they also have a new blog post about the DirecTV streaming service. Are your code? You say you got that cord and you cut it. But you still want to watch them TV shows, all that live TV. AT&T brought, bought DirecTV, and now they're launching DirecTV Now, a streaming service. And Ting has the write-up all about it for you cord cutters at their blog. But you can get to the blog by going to techsnap.ting.com. Check them out. Play around. Do the savings calculator. See how much you would save. And then once you get signed up, you're going to love the dashboard they give you to manage all of this. They also have companion apps. No freaking secret hidden charges. Just $6 for the line, Uncle Sam's cut, whatever it is in your neck of the woods, and then you pay for what you use. It's straightforward. It's easy. It's brilliant. Check them out. TechSnap.Ting.com. Shake it up, the mobile industry. And thanks to everybody who takes a little bit of time to go check out TechSnap.Ting.com. Thanks to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. TechSnap.ting.com. I'm going into holidays now, and uh, I think I am going to put some SIM cards in my dad's stocking. I hope he's not watching. I just got a text message from him. He just tried to call me on my <laughs> Ting line, actually, as I was starting the Ting ad, so I don't think he's watching. Dad always does this, but my plan is to give Dad a, a Ting SIM. He's got a Raspberry Pi I think he could use for it, but more than that, Dad's got security cameras all over the place. Yeah, Dad's a little paranoid. TechSnap.Ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Avalanche, Alan. You're, you're going to cover Avalanche. Oh, really? Good. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm glad to hear this because I, I watched the most ridiculous, overblown, hyped report by NBC, I think it was. And it kind of freaked me out a little bit. And I didn't get any actual details about what Avalanche is, other than that cybercrime is apparently destroying the world economy. (laughs) Outside of that, Avalanche sounds like a bad thing. So, Mr. Jude, please explain it to me. Yes. Uh, So, it says, um, it was being billed as an unprecedented global law enforcement response uh, to (laughs) cybercrime. Oh, I like Uh, it. Federal investigators in the United States, United Kingdom, and Europe, including Germany, uh, say they've dismantled a sprawling cybercrime machine known as Avalanche. You got to say it like Uh, that every time. (laughs) It's a distributed cloud hosting network. Uh, that for the past seven years has been rented out to fraudsters to use in launching countless malware and phishing attacks. Hmm. So somebody figured what they actually needed was a platform for malware as a service. Malware so as being a the service. guy actually doing the malware all the time sure. and having to deal with all those headaches, they would just build the infrastructure and rent it out like Amazon AWS to the bad guys. What could go wrong? Yeah, so the Avalanche network was used in the delivery uh, as the delivery platform to launch and manage mass global malware attacks and money mule uh, recruiting campaigns. Okay. It caused an estimated 6 million uh, euros in damages in concentrated, uh, concentrated cyber attacks on the online banking systems in Germany alone. Mm. In addition, uh, the monetary losses associated with malware attacks conducted over the Avalanche network over the course of the six or so years or whatever is estimated to be in the hundreds of millions of euros worldwide. Although exact calculations are difficult due to the number of malware families managed through the platform. Uh, The global effort to take down this network involved the critical support of prosecutors and investigators from 30 different countries. Uh, And then (laughs) these numbers at the end sound a little sad. As a result, five people have been arrested, 
37 different uh, premises have been searched and 39 servers were seized. That's uh, not all of that malware, impressive. <laughs> yeah. Victims of malware infections were identified in over 180 different countries. Okay. They also managed to have 221 servers taken offline through the abuse notifications sent to their uh, hosting providers. So they did get, you know, 300 servers shut down. Yeah, uh, but, but they, this only, is, they only physically took 37 of those. This is not as impressive when it's a worldwide cybercrime malware as a service platform well, and you're taking down 30 servers. I'm sorry. Well, no, they took that. They had 221 taken down. Okay. They physically seized oh, for okay. evidence okay. Uh, 37 of the servers. All right. 39 I'm, of the servers. I'm, I am moderately more impressed. Yeah. So in particular, the operation uh, marks the largest ever use of sinkholing to combat botnet infrastructure. Is it... Uh, took 800,000 domain names offline. Oh. And sinkhole them so any remaining infections won't continue. All right. Yeah. That's a bit more. Right? Yeah, that's getting real right there. Yeah. yeah that's a, this, the sinkhole thing is actually interesting that they are... That's a well, little more proactive. The, the part we haven't described is that it's a dual fast flux network. Uh, so the idea behind a fast flux network is that you have many, many machines that are serving the malware... And the DNS changes very, very quickly so that even somebody who's purposely trying to map out the servers that are being used will only ever see a fraction of the servers. And if you shut some down, it doesn't matter. It just keeps working. Hmm, okay. Um, we use a slightly less um, obfuscated and more deterministic version of that at Scale Engine to deal with, you know, if a server goes down, video streaming keeps working for everybody. Uh, but this one is dual fast flux. They did two different things. They had a domain generation algorithm that would change the domain name that the, the bad guys would, or that the infected machines would look up so that you couldn't just block the three domains they were using. They were using 800,000 domains. <laughs> yeah, go ahead and block all those. <laughs> so every time they do a lookup, they use a different domain on a uh, prescribed schedule based on an encryption key. Um, and then the results from that would also be fast flux so they'd be changing constantly. Uh, with like, Their maximum TCL record is like five minutes. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. But if you did a second lookup with a different DNS server, you would get a completely different address. Right. And so you could never tell how many servers they really had. And even if you sat there looking it up constantly and sending abuse notifications to all of them, you'd never find the entire network. Hmm. That's pretty clever. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, but as a criminal cloud hosting environment that was rented out to scammers, spammers, and other ne'er-do-wells, <laughs> Kreb loves that phrase. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Avalanche uh, has been a major source of cybercrime for years. In 2009, when investigators say the fraud network first opened for business, Avalanche was responsible for funneling roughly two-thirds of all phishing attacks aimed at stealing usernames and passwords from banks and e-commerce sites. Hmm. By 2011, Avalanche was uh, being heavily used by crooks to deploy banking Trojans. All right. They say uh, cyber criminals rented the servers and through them launched and managed digital fraud campaigns, sending emails in bulk to infect computers with malware, ransomware, and other malicious software that could steal users' banking details and uh, other personal data, says the National Crime Authority in the UK. The criminals uh, used the stolen information uh, for fraud and extortion. At its peak, 17 different types of malware were hosted by the network, including major strains with names such as uh, Gaznim, URL Zone, Panda Banker, and Loose Mail Sniffer. <laughs> That's my favorite. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, at least 500,000 computers, uh, half a million computers around the world were infected and controlled by the Avalanche system on any given day. 
So you can see how they could do fast flux. Yeah, uh, no kidding. I just was like, well, there's only 86,400 seconds in a day, and we have half a million computers, so each one can serve stuff for like one second, and we're still never going to find the whole thing, right? Jeez. The Avalanche network was uh, especially resilient because it relied on a hosting method known as fast flux. And in this particular case, it was actually dual fast flux because we're fast fluxing on the DNS side and on the domain name side. So it was made it even harder to... So you couldn't block the domain name to stop the fast flexing, and uh, you couldn't block IPs hmm. because the IP would change constantly. Uh, so yeah, so fast flux is this kind of round robin technique that lets botnets hide phishing and malware delivery sites behind an ever changing network of compromised systems acting as proxies. This is pretty so advanced. Maybe they only had a couple, like two hundred servers, but they would proxy the connections to them via all these infected machines, so that the IP addresses of their servers would never be revealed. Alan, when you hear stuff like that, does it every time you hear about a hacking story or a compromise and they say, well, we think it's so-and-so because we've tracked it back to an IP address, yeah. when you hear, every time we cover these stories, anything that's even remotely advanced, they have super sophisticated, often custom-brewed methods to hide up and, and, and obscure well, their IPs. Like, yeah, this is relatively easy to do uh, with the current thing. You know, a bunch of them would probably just use Cloudflare, except that the Cloudflare might actually tell the cops what the backend IP is. Uh, whereas, you know, the fast flux botnet is a little harder to do. Although, if you purposely get a couple of your machines infected, you might be able to uh, observe them and eventually figure out the, where the backends are. And I was wondering. That's an interesting it, idea. Uh, in order to shut them down. I'd do it. Uh, but So by constantly changing addresses, it's hard for researchers and others to report the compromised hosts. Uh, even when they're trying lookups constantly, they're only ever going to see a fraction of that network of half a million computers. Yeah, it's a hard picture to paint. Yeah. Uh, it's worth noting that Avalanche has for many years been heavily favored by crime gangs to deploy the Zeus and SpyEye malware variants involved in clearing out bank accounts for a large number of small and medium-sized businesses. These attacks relied heavily on so-called money mules, people willing or unwittingly uh, recruited to help fraudsters launder the stolen money. What's interesting is they were also using this network to recruit the money mules. Uh, you know, when you see those those ads on Google and so on, it's like, make $2,000 a day by staying at home. It's like, yeah, by laundering <laughs> money for people. Oh, hey, hold on. Hold on. Where do I, can you send me a link? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, then the, the Shadow Server Foundation, which they run a, a, a bunch of honeypots, and you can basically tell them your ranges of IP addresses that are your servers, and they'll tell you if they uh, see any suspicious activity uh, involving your IP addresses, whether it's hosting the malware sites or, uh, you know, bots connecting from your IP or whatever. Uh, it was quite useful when I was uh, hosting IRC stuff back in the day. Hmm. Anyway, the Shadow Server Foundation, which is a nonprofit organization uh, for security professionals that assisted uh, in what the organization describes in its post. So uh, over at the Shadow Server blog, they have uh, their side of the story, which is worth taking out or looking at. So, uh, they took part of the takedown, uh, which was an 18-month collaboration with law enforcement. Uh, just, they described Avalanche as dual fast, uh, dual fast flux botnet. Uh, individual nodes within the botnet are registered and then quickly deregistered as the host associated with the domain name service A records, uh, and they would change every five minutes. Uh, or rather, they would change more frequently than that, but with a TTL of five minutes, so that your if you look it up, your ISP server would cache it for five minutes, and you wouldn't see any of the different IPs that they were serving uh, for the rest of the five minutes. Uh, 
and it would cycle through hundreds or thousands of IP addresses. There are uh, multiple domain names and command and control nodes hard-coded into the botnet malware, along with bots uh, that switch to different domain names if specific domains are blocked. Huh. So sometimes it would actually be like, oh, that, I, that domain isn't working anymore. Let me switch to the next one. Right. Uh, so if you're just observing the bot and don't have its source code, you wouldn't know what the next one was until later. And then some of them will have dates built in. It's like, at this date, switch to this one. At that date, switch to this one. Or other ones, it's like, you know, here's the encryption key. Uh, and then you encrypt the date or something with it. And the result you get tells you what domain to look up. And so the bots basically know what all the future domains are going to be. But the, the values aren't sitting there in the source code. Mm. And maybe you can feed them different keys and so on. So that's why you could actually create something that's like serving up up it, it, it's like an AWS or whatever you will for malware because if if it's super hard to map the size of the network and it's super hard to lock down where the com- command and control servers are actually you, are because the, they're fast flexing and, and all you're seeing are the edges not right. the actual things. because when when you started the story I'm like well how do you launch an AWS of malware and not get immediately nailed to the wall and it's this this is how you do it yeah it's like you could you could run it on real AWS as long as nobody's reporting to Amazon that you're <laughs> yes. distributing the spam because you're actually processing it through yeah. 100,000 or 500,000 infected computers. How, and so what, do, what end, do providers um, do? Like, how do you know this isn't happening through via scale engine? Just well, have to we, watch don't host that, we don't host websites for people, except for you. Oh, I'm special. Okay. Yeah. I like that. Uh, but uh, at the end of the story, there's a link to an infographic from uh, Europol, the yeah. Law enforcement agency, mm-hmm. uh, and they show how some of it works with their domain generation algorithm and how it comes up with different domain names uh, constantly. How they use yeah, the it's cool. I showed it, I showed it. they have two of them, or at least you linked two of them, and I showed mm-hmm. I showed them on the stream while you were talking about it. Yep. Okay, but yeah, and they show the proxies redirecting, and then they have their actual backend infrastructure, which you know they could just be paying any unsuspecting hosting company for yeah and because you're not getting any reviews reports or right. you know you're not actually seeing the malware going back and forth right uh it works i hear this is great use of ovh <laughs> <laughs> that's a really interesting story alan and your coverage was a little bit different than nbc's coverage turns out that way more informative so uh and if you missed anything uh, alan has it noted and linked there's the- links to krebs uh ars technica and Europol's uh, versions. Yeah, and the including Europol the infographs. one does have as much detail. And then uh, also check out the Shadow Server one. They helped with it. They probably have the most technical detail. Nice. So if you're listening and you want to see the infographs I was showing to the video folks, all of that stuff's linked in the show notes. And, of course, you can also read Krebs's uh, sort of summarization of it all, which uh, is, is pretty great. Thank you, Mr. Jute. Very nice. Let's take a moment and talk about IX Systems, a second sponsor here on the TechSnap program, ixsystems.com slash TechSnap. Here's the first thing about IX you should expect. It's going to be a sales process that you've like nothing you've ever experienced before. And if you're anything like me, you're going to go into it wanting to blow past this. You're going to want to configure it all on the website, hit add to cart and just buy. And you don't even want to have to talk to a human being. Don't be that guy. That's who Chris was, his first IX buying experience. Don't be that guy. They have staffed their sales engineering so well, it is worth your time. Because (laughs) – 
there is one thing I have learned is I, I, I set aside budget for money. You know, I'll buy this piece of equipment. I set aside time to get it implemented. We create a project to set up the software, get everything switched over to it, make it part of our business. All of that is done really well, just like I used to do for my clients. However, what I never have time for in my business is when something dies or something fails or something doesn't work out the way we expected because then we're out of money, but even worse, we're out of time. IX Systems is the best way to avoid this problem. IXSystems.com slash techstamp. Go there, learn more. You can grab the white paper. You can support the show by visiting that URL, but more importantly, I would encourage you, switch your IT purchasing for your infrastructure over to IX. Whether it's small jobs or large jobs, IX has incredible systems built around these Intel processors that are kicking so much ass, you're going to have to go there and learn more yourself. IXSystems.com slash techsnap. Dig around, look at their blog, learn a little bit more about the company, look at their clients. Learn why Alan and I go to IX when it comes to our hardware. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, the big difference is just not having to think about this stuff. Like, so I was looking, uh, you know, at Back Friday, there was one of the other companies that makes hardware uh, had this ad. And they were like, look, we're giving like half off the price of a server. So I looked at it and I'm like, well... That I always oh, need more you, hardware. You want extra for the rails? Yeah. And, oh, yeah. By the time I was done, I was like, well, I don't know that that part's going to work. Yeah. I, which kind of SSD do I want? Yeah. <laughs> I know. You know, it's funny because, uh, you know, one of the things we never mention in these spots are the cost. Like, IX, IX is not super expensive. But I want to sit here and I want to say things like, Going with IX solves things that you can't assign a, a value to. Like I, I sit here, I want, I want to make like a money proposition to you, but I don't need to. IX not only saves you time, builds a better system for you, but their prices are incredibly reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> like it's just, it's they couldn't be a better sponsor for this show. And I really encourage you, as somebody who's worked in IT, I've worked with a lot of different vendors. I, I have gotten, especially over this last year, I have really gotten to know the IX people, and they are good people. And they are creating one of the best products in the market. IXSystems.com slash tech. They're creating the best. They are creating the best product. They really are creating the best product. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. Go there and learn more. And thanks to IX for sponsoring the TechSnap program. You might not think your server needs to be custom, but it really does. Yeah. If you want the best server for the job, it's the only way to do well, it. Well, and it's just you get so much experience behind every piece of equipment that you buy. And and it's it's it it is it it community deep it is hardware level deep it is company partnerships you get so much behind every piece of equipment ixsystems.com slash techsnap so this next story kind of makes me a little uncomfortable alan i gotta be honest the headline is meet the men who spy on women through their webcams sounds kind of creepy a little bit that's 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 mostly the, point the, headline. Of the article, I guess. Really, is. yeah. <laughs> that's the entire point of the headline. <laughs> yeah. All right. What's going on? But yeah. So uh, this article describes some miscreants who use RAT or Remote Administration Trojans to control people's computers and then use that to harass the people or spy on them in various ways and so on. Uh, so it describes uh, a scenario in this particular case of a, a ratter which is what they like <laughs> apparently like that's to be not called. bad though it's uh, not it's not awful watching and and then taunting a victim trying to scare them and shock them all right so it just starts with uh, a blonde woman sitting you know on the couch with her computer on the coffee table or whatever and she's like see that shit keeps popping up on my computer 
the woman is visible from thousands of miles away on the hacker's computer. The hacker has infected her machine with a remote administration tool uh, that gives him access to the woman's screen, her webcam, her files, her microphone, and anything else on her computer. Uh, he watches her and the baby through a small control window open on his Windows PC, and then he describes, uh, you know, decides to have a little fun. He enters a series of shock and pornographic websites and then watches them appear on the woman's computer and watches her reaction. <laughs> the woman is startled. So he, he does the Microsoft text-to-speech and makes the computer ask, did it scare you? Yeah, okay. Uh, so yeah, a young man uh, steps into the webcam frame and he's like, uh, yeah, you've been hacked and closes the computer and oh, unplugs man. the internet. What a, oh man! What yeah. an experience! Both stare at the computer in horrified fascination <laughs> as picture of old naked men appear in the web browser. Ooh! Uh, then vanishes as the McAfee security product blocks the dangerous site. You know, far away, the hacker opens his fund manager control panel, uh, which provides a host of tools for messing with his rat victims. He can hide the Windows Start button, or the taskbar, or the clock, uh, or you know. Uh, the icons on the desktop. Sure. You know, my favorite one is always take a screenshot of the desktop and then turn <laughs> right. the start menu and the icons off so that it look like they're there, but you can't click on yeah, them. Yeah, that's so, a good one. I have definitely done that one. <laughs> yeah, it says badly confusing many casual Windows users. Uh, you can have their computer speak to them. Instead, he settles for popping open the uh, remote computer's optical drive and making it say achoo. <laughs> <laughs> I have done that too. I am a dick. Uh, copies of this uh, incident like this are not hard to find. They're on YouTube, and there's thousands of other videos showing rat controllers or ratters and them using them and taunting people, pranking or toying with their victims. Of course, uh, the kinds of people who watch others through their webcams aren't likely to limit themselves to those sort of mere hijinks, mm -hmm. not when computers store and webcams record far more intimate material. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. I, I have one pointed at me right now as we record this. Well, you do too, obviously. I can show you, but there yeah. are three webcams on yes. the top of my monitor right yeah, now. Yeah, I've got two. I've got two webcams plus a plus a camera pointed at me. <laughs> yeah. Hold on. Do I have a... Hold on. I, I thought I had a shot of it. But, oh, there it is. There, see, look. I, that's me on the webcam, Alan. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but what, what what my webcam has is a lens a cover. Camera. Yeah, mine mine does not have that. I have the same model of webcam, but it was bought before. Thirty E. Yeah, yeah, but sure, it's not a nine twenty. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but I think it was. I think I bought it before Edward Snowden was a known name. Uh, yeah, but yes, uh, both of mine do. So I actually, uh, if I stop using the broken one, I could use it as spare and put it on my old nine twenty. You're still using the broken one. No, no, no. The, but the broken one is sitting on the monitor ah, because I didn't unmount it last sure. week when I swapped it. Right. In the middle were, of the show. You were doing a mad dog style. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, this reminds me of high school. Back when I was in high school, uh, which would have been uh, 15, 16 plus years ago now. Um, I know, right? I built one of these in Visual Basic, a simple rat. Uh, and not only that, but I convinced the school to let me install it on all of the computers. How did you do that? By giving them a version of the control panel. So the teacher could sit at the front of the class, get the list of computers, browse to them, and take a screenshot and look what people are doing and a couple other basic things. So they got a control panel about this big written in Visual Basic. 
Mine was the whole screen. <laughs> I I I did this via I did this I did I did versions of this within individual commands like ejecting the CD-ROM, uh, controlling the screen, speech output, and I did it for Macs and Windows machines over the network. And the way I did it is I just became so valuable to the district IT staff that they had to give me administrative access to the network. And once I got domain admin privileges and Apple server privileges, I was able to <laughs> yeah. so, I did all the, kinds the, of stuff. <laughs> so, so by giving them this program that they found very useful, especially like is it the, the librarian liked it the most because, you know, they had the computers in the sure. library that anybody could walk up and use. And every time she did her little patrol every 15 minutes or whatever to come up and make sure nobody was doing something they yeah. shouldn't have been on the computer because, you know, those computers are for doing research, not for, you know. Right. Shenanigans. Playing yeah. game sites or whatever. Yeah. Um, so every time she'd walk over, everybody like minimize or close things. And she was like, Gah. what are they doing? So then she could look at screenshots of the yeah. computers from her desk. And then because it was Windows 95 back then, the, the Visual Basic <laughs> code do beep loop uh, would do a constant loop of the beep command, uh-huh. which actually fired off the PC speaker. And yes. In a tight loop, that would actually freeze Windows entirely. <laughs> so the computer would just freeze. You couldn't yes. move the mouse. Couldn't you do were anything. Owning the interrupt, going, Alan. You were owning the interrupt. Yeah. The whole time. <laughs> you know what's funny about that is, and I don't. I mean, this would. I went back to the school district that when I was in high school, I got admin privileges to. I went back as a contractor many, many ten years. Actually, ten years later, I went back and. Um, that, what you just described, is now a multi-thousand-dollar yearly annual product that they buy for all of their labs. They can look at all of the screens on the Macs or the PCs, the Windows PCs, that can pull up a screen that shows all of the monitors at once. They can remote access into one of them. They can do its VNC, its file transfer. If you would have built that up a little bit and sold it, well, you'd essentially have another business on your hand. And you don't have I, I remember it, it, it got up to the board level because I remember uh, when I was doing my co-op at the power plant, the dedicated uh, teacher they had there actually was talking about it. Oh, yeah. And I was like, hmm. That's interesting that both you and I had a really it's, interesting experience interesting with the district. The entire point of this whole thing was just a graduation prank. Yeah. It was to make all the computers have the CD-ROM drag going in and out yeah. while they played the Borg speech from TNG. What le- I am Locutus of Blackboard. No, no, the, uh, you know, we are the Borg. We are the Borg. Like resistance resistance is, futile. is futile. We will add yeah. your individual and biological distinctiveness to our own. Yeah, yeah, that one. That's yeah. a good one. <laughs> yeah. Just every computer in the school playing that, that wave file at once. You know, <laughs> are you serious? Yes. <laughs> You know what I did? And it, it almost got my computer teacher fired. You know, Mr. Bassett, I thank you for taking the heat on this because he knew who did it and he did not. He did not expose me. I took a I took a Photoshop of the principal and one of the female teachers and I did a merge. I put the principal on the body of a female teacher and then I sent it to all of the printers in the high school. <laughs> <laughs> And, so, and he he freaked out. He came into the tech department and he like he slammed keyboards down on the ground and stomped on them and demanded to know who had done it. Like he did not. I thought it was funny. And and then you know it's it's funny in in our communication class the assignment was to take three pictures from people in the class and mix them together. It was just the face, but to make a new face out of three people's faces, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Oh man, I, it became a meme before we had memes. Like uh, they had it up in the staff room, uh, the graduating yeah, well, class, the seniors had it up for, at their for graduation. Us, ours was I, I did a, a, a Photoshop mashup of George W. Bush, uh, Bush and Osama bin Laden. 
<laughs> that sounds like a, that's something you can't get away with in the states at the time. <laughs> Only no, in Canada, Canada could you get away with just that. Post nine eleven, right? <laughs> that is boy. So yeah, this is a thing, and you know, it's yeah. funny that you talk about building a tool like that because now you could look at it either as an administrative tool to properly manage. Well, that's, that's the thing or, with that. like you know, like people this. pay for things like TeamViewer. Sure. And, right? and and log me in. Yes, they're perfectly legitimate tools. The the thing the thing is is you can you could absolutely create a tool like this for legitimate reasons, and you can create a well, tool like, like uh, this to just harass. There's people. an official Microsoft one. Uh, it's called PS Exec. It's it's from the old Sysinternal set and Mark Rusinovich. And then there was a, a different one we use called Beyond Exec. I used these in college, uh, where I had the local the local administrator password was the same for all of the computers. Um. And so I could use it to run a command on any computer. Mm. And for LAN parties, we would actually use this to install all the games yeah. <laughs> on all the computers at once sure. uh, from Network Share. Yeah, why not? Or, or during class, I would use it to close the video game the person in front of me was playing because it was distracting me. Yeah. <laughs> so you can see how you can use tools like this to be really funny, right? I mean, you could be yeah. – like we can do – like ejecting CD-ROMs, but – but you can also use these to do real harm. And if if yeah. you're doing this to somebody who's a total computer novice, this could be some freaky stuff. Just moving well, their in, mouse cursor can freak them out. Yes, but you know, in this case, if you're using their webcam, you could record blackmail material and you know, nude pictures and all kinds of things like that. Right? So, so then they have a quote here from. Uh, so there's a, a hacking forum where people uh, that do this communicate. Uh, which has a really strange set of rules about what it allowed and what not. But anyway, they say, man, I feel dirty looking at these pictures. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so this says someone, uh, one of the uh, many users on the above ground hacking discussion site on the Internet, which has more than 23 million posts. The poster uh, is referencing a 134 page thread filled with images of female slaves surreptitiously snapped by hackers using the women's own webcams. This is uh, the poor people think they're alone in their private homes but have no idea they're the laughing stock of the hack forums. Hmm. It would be funny if one of these slaves ventured into learning how to hack and, uh, and came across this thread. <laughs> now, when they use this the word slave there, they're, you know, mostly joking because the women are unsuspecting. But, uh, you know, I've also heard of cases of once they have the blackmail material, using it to force the women to give them more. Oh, or, absolutely. You know, basically. Sure. You know, forcing a person into being your own private cam girl or something. I have, I, I, I have talked about on and off on the unfiltered program. Like, what happens when we go into an era where the people who have technical knowledge have an intrinsic ability or have have something that they can? Hmm. I'm trying to, I'm trying to think about a way to not say this where it sounds demeaning. It's not really like lord over people. Yeah. It's more just coerce them with. Things. Like, like you have an understanding of something that they're forced to you use. Go but don't... The, if you think about it in medieval times, you're now a wizard and you can do things that they just can't possibly understand. And right. you're magical and you're to be feared. And yeah, even though it's just the only thing separating them from understanding is just knowledge. But it's not yeah. something because technology has become become so commonplace and so accessible. They don't have to learn how it works to be able to use it. And so they're at a certain disadvantage compared to those who do understand how it works and how to use it. Yeah. And, you know, uh, there's one thread on this forum uh, where the guy was watching the webcam uh, as he stole some kid's uh, Steam login. Oh, geez. The kid starts crying and his big brother's That's getting awful. all mad. And then his mom's calling the cops. And That's so awful. <laughs> yeah. That's no good. Yeah. Hmm. 
Uh, this is whether uh, this would in fact be funny is unlikely. Rat operators have nearly complete control of the computers they infect. They can and do browse people's private pictures in uh, search of erotic images to share with the others online. They even have strategies for watching where women store photos, uh, most likely to be compromising. Which kind of brings up an interesting topic. <laughs> I've always found the uh, psychology of how people s- store and organize files fascinating. Oh, tell me more. Not necessarily just where the, the files are trying to hide in plain sight or something, right? Not just but how just they hide the porn, layout, but just in general, the, yeah. the, the, the layouts people come up with. I, I often have come across Some layouts and I've gone team for our customers for organizing their yeah. videos. I'm yeah. like, what the hell is like <laughs> fixing spaces and underscores oh, and inner caps and the file names and all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I bet that drives a guy like you crazy. I yes. and, and um, for me, I look back at my old organizational systems and I go, What the hell was I doing? Like why did I do it that way? <laughs> well like, so I have I have I one myself off my aunt. My aunt's a real estate agent, and she's like, was like hyper anal organized, right? And so, um, I think I have a screenshot of it here somewhere. But um, folders are prefixed with a two-digit number, so that they're ordered not alphabetically, but in the order I want them to be ordered in. Hmm. Yes. And and I don't number them one, two, three, four, five, or something. I number them with big gaps between them, so I can insert new things in the middle. That okay? What are you using? Because Just, I could like. I, I'm, I'm numbering the directories, not anything else. So yeah, that's what I do. So I, I do this too. Is I number my directories, but I do one, two, three, four, five. And you're doing oh, like no. mine's like, uh, like my currently the top directory in the uh, my work directory, uh, my like business stuff is yeah. ten dash invoices, and then eleven dash incoming invoices, yeah. and then fifteen dash quotes, yeah. and twenty dash reports. So and you see, can you see this tables. on your video feedback? Can you see this? This is my uh, this is last night's episode of Unfilter, and I have dash I have zero zero dash, and I have the folders laid out in the order they go, and then when you go into them, they the clips themselves are also numbered individually, so that way they just sort regardless of alphabetic or regardless of creation timestamp, they sort the way I want them to after I've organized and processed them. And I sometimes do this with my footage in a, in a different way, but I will use A, B, C as like categories and then like I'll use 10s, uh, 20s, 30s, and 40s. Like so I have like a, I have a range of 10 in between each where I could do like 31, 32, 33 that I could add later on. That's kind of how. Yeah, so I just pasted a screenshot of mine, uh, an older version of mine in the uh, chat room if you want to try to show that. <laughs> Yeah, okay, yeah, at alanjude.com. I didn't even know that was still up. <laughs> Let's see, zooming in and enhancing. Enhancing, and there we go. So we have invoices, reports, requests. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's kind of close. To, that's funny. You and I have kind of come on a similar model. Yeah. And it's just uh, because you don't need to have like, anything else but a file system for that at, to work. Uh, but, so, so that's one fascinating thing. But looking at how people hide their porn is a different thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it brings up, you know, uh, there's a different version of this that also happens, right? Uh, so while well, there's the ratters that are infecting computers and so on, there's also the people you take your computer to when it does get infected. Hmm. Right? So if you take your computer into the local Best Buy or whatever to have them clean the viruses off or reinstall it or whatever... Uh, while they're trying to fix your computer, do you, you don't think they also do a search for star.jpg? Well, yeah. You know, there are some forums out there where people that fix computers swap the interesting photos that they have found. <laughs> That's embarrassing. Oh, boy. Yeah. That's not... Uh... See, see, so 
if you're going to have, you know, not just porn, but other stuff uh, on your computer, you probably want it in something like a Veracrypt volume because you never know if your computer breaks, you're not going to be able to go and erase the files or something before you take it to the store to be fixed. Very right? true. And things like that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, so rat tools aren't new. The hacker group Cult of the Dead Cow famously released an early one called Back Orifice at the DEF CON Hacker Conference in 1998. Uh, it was one of the first tools I ever used of this type. Hmm. Uh, the lead author, who went uh, by the alias Sirdistic, uh, called Back Orifice a tool designed for remote tech support aid and employee monitoring and administration of Windows networks. But the Cult of the Dead Cow press release made it clear that Back Orifice was meant to expose Microsoft's Swiss cheese approach to security. Compared to today's tools, Back Orifice was primitive. It could handle the basics like key logging, restarting the machine, transferring files, snapping screenshots. I remember in the one I wrote, screenshot took a while because it took a screenshot of a bitmap, then it had to compress it as a JPEG, and then it would send it over the network. And I had like 336K internet at the time. So, it, you know, it took a while to get a screenshot. Yes, it did. <laughs> even the LAN at the school wasn't very fast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so even doing it, you know, inside the school wasn't particularly fast. <laughs> yeah, 10 anyway, megabits. It goes on, uh, so 10, 10 the- megabit. My first school network, 10 megabit. And uh, it was, uh, it was uh, what is it? Not duplex. What's the other? I can't even remember anymore. When your network, Just, when you have 10 uh, megabit and it's not duplex. Half to oh yeah, half duplex, which, yeah. which is actually a misnomer, right? Because duplex means both directions. Yes, that's why I was. That's why I was like, what? <laughs> and you can tell how long it's been since I've been on a half duplex connection, though. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, so the uh, interesting comments about how, uh, so you know, these routers are not especially sophisticated. Some of them are even to the point yeah. where you know, they don't yeah. even they can't even trick anybody into installing the virus, right? Uh, and one of them goes on here. I seem to get a lot of female slaves by spreading Sims 3 with a rat server uh, on a torrent site. <laughs> so a torrent with a, a fake version of the Sims 3 or with the Sims 3 infected with a virus. Uh, so that when they install it, they also get the virus. And Sims 3 was uh, something that a lot of females downloaded. Uh, another turns to social media. Is I've been able to message random hot girls on Facebook who so I have zero mutual friends with and infect them. And in the process, you become friends to them and get access to their Facebook, too. Uh, it says, with the right words, anything is possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, then it goes on here. Calling most of these guys hackers does a real disservice to hackers everywhere. Only minimal technical skill is required to deploy a rat and acquire slaves. Once infected, all the common rot- rat software provides a control panel view in which one can see all the current slaves, their location, the status of their machines. With a few clicks, the operator can start watching the screen or webcam of any slave currently online. Uh, and then, you know, they, the some of the more experienced ratters sell ebooks to the less experienced ratters, telling them how to do it, uh, or you know what scripts to use to, to convince people to install it, and a bunch of things like this. All kinds of of terrible, terrible things. Man, it looks like an old Windows application. The well, control panel. They have some they have some newer ones as well, but oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, boy, that looks awful though. Most of these are very unsophisticated. I feel I feel a little disgusted after talking about this. Yep. The way they refer to them as slaves and taking pictures yep. of girls, it's mm-hmm. it's so gross. Yep. It's just disgusting. And it, the problem is, again, I, it's just, the statement I made earlier is... When, when I was doing this, when I was 14, <laughs> there were no webcams and nobody had pictures on their computer. 
Yeah. I just yeah. remember, I remember uh, one of the popular ones was NetBus. So I had a program on my computer called NetBuster. So it would actually look like your computer was infected, but when they tried to connect and took a screenshot, they get a picture of a guy with his head up his ass. <laughs> Jeez, dude. <laughs> That's funny, though. That's yeah. good. And you're just doing it to a couple people you know locally. It's not like it's over well, the internet. So to it's like I'm scanning my ISP's local subnet. Right? Okay, well, <laughs> still. <laughs> I can't help but love that one. You know, I had other fun just by, like, getting a second ICQ username and, like, adding people I know and, like, taunting them and be like i know who you are and where you yeah. live Blah. yeah yeah i know it, yeah I, I i did great ones like uh angela and i would go into aol chat rooms and have a total fake meltdown in the chat room and then we would have people that would that would break off on and they would pick sides and we knew this was going to happen we knew they would pick sides and then and then we would we would just screw with them a little bit i mean there's all kinds of but things then, we did but, as kids then angela would put on the wizard hat and <laughs> I don't want to get into that. That that's a whole other story. <laughs> it's yeah. so it's so like it's gone from like oh, this is a fun thing to do and I'm experimenting with technology to now it's like the terminology they use and the pictures they take it's gone in a dark direction I don't like, Alan. Yep. I would say one of the biggest problems facing ratters is the increased prevalence of webcam lights that indicate when the camera is in use. There are entire threads on the forum devoted to bypassing the lights, which routinely worry rat victims and often lead to the loss of the slave. Yeah, here's one of uh, a cop who has a laptop in his uh, police his car. Camera. And then they turned well, I think, on. Uh, this one was on his computer. They found this picture. It's not that's not a picture. It's from the webcam. That makes sense. Yeah, because probably didn't have Internet yeah. connection while he's in the car. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but things like that. Um, but yeah, so the, they found on the forums there that most older Acer laptops don't have a light for the webcam. So the bad guys will like check what hardware you have against the list. And only if it's one of the ones that doesn't turn on the light, will they bother doing it? Uh, Maybe that's and, why know, uh, a bunch of them are like, you could get super rich if you were willing to sell us like a firmware hack for the, the webcam to turn off the light. You know, both James Comey and uh, Mark Zuckerberg have uh, tape over their webcams. Maybe they know something we don't. And you've got a flap. Yeah. <laughs> Alan Jude out. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. It and it. Gosh, people, just patch your shit and learn a little bit about your computers. Learn a little bit about one, the tool well, you're using. In particular, don't run dodgy links and don't. Click on things from people you don't know on Facebook and so on, right? Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. the people doing this are mostly really, really unsophisticated. And so they only have to trick you. And, you know, uh, and then here's the well, quote from one ratter. He's like, unfortunately, she asked her boyfriend why the light in her cam kept coming on. Uh, and he knew and she never came back. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then another guy was like, oh, so I pop up a message uh, in a Windows looking dialogue on the computer saying, oh, it's the this is the webcam software. Uh, we need to install an update. You might see the camera light flick on and off a couple of times while we're doing the software update. Clever. Yep. Social engineering. <laughs> That's all it takes. And then, yeah, it goes on here. You know, rats can be entirely legitimate. Security companies use them to help find and uh, retrieve stolen laptops, for instance. Or, you know, uh, Rode Desktop is a feature built into Windows for administrators, right? Or people pay for software like LogMeIn and, and uh, TeamViewer and so on. Uh the developers behind Rat Software generally describe their products as nothing more than tools that can be used for good or ill. And yet uh, some tools have features that make them look a lot more like they were built with lawlessness in mind. Hey-ho. 
Uh, and they say rats aren't going away. Despite the occasional intervention from authorities, too many exist. Plenty of them are entirely legal and source code for some is in the wild. The, the Black Shades one was leaked in 2010 uh, after the author got arrested. Uh, those who don't uh, want to end up being toyed with in a YouTube video are advised to take the same precautions that apply to most malware. Use a solid anti-malware program. Keep your operating system up to date. Make sure plugins, especially Flash and Java, aren't out of date. Uh, don't visit dodgy forums or sites. Don't buy dodgy items online. Don't click dodgy attachments and emails. And don't download dodgy torrents. Uh, such steps won't stop every attack, but they will foil most of the more casual ratters and keep you uh, from being the next laughingstock of the forums. Hmm. Uh, if you're unlucky enough to have your computer infected with a rat, prepare to be sold or traded uh, to the kind of people who enter these forums and ask, can I get some slaves for my rat, please? I got two bucks. How many will you give me? Jeez. Uh, at, at that point, the indignities you will suffer uh, and the horrific website images you will see will be limited only by the imagination of the most terrifying person ever, a 14-year-old boy on the internet with unprivileged internet connection. Or unsupervised. <laughs> That's true. Oh, it's and, true. You know, like we're saying, th this article is rather tame with some of the things they could do to you. I think mostly because they don't want to scare the shit out of everybody. People will be throwing their computers away. Uh, but then <laughs> I, I pulled up a story from Ars Technica back from 2013, uh, where a Detroit kid uh, got caught on camera doing something he was so ashamed of. Uh, he was willing to go and pawn $100,000 of his family jewelry at a pawn shop to get the 1500 bucks to wire it to the Philippines uh, to, to pay off this guy to, to not do whatever he was going to do with the video. Uh, and then, then the guy was like, well, I, I would like some more money, please, then. Uh, since obviously you managed to get me $1,500, why, why would I stop blackmailing you? Uh, and eventually, uh, you know, the kid had to tell his parents uh, where the $100,000 in family jewelry went to. And, and, you know, they tried to get some of it back from the pawn shop, but, and so on. Hmm. But, Good yeah. find. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, boy, Alan. But most of that story turned out to be you and I reminiscing about. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. But how it can be innocent, but not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, in Kids this case, these days, school Alan. wanted it for <clears throat> legitimate reasons to stop people doing things they weren't supposed to do on the computers. Yeah. 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 It's funny that you created a piece of software like that and then have that become an entire industry. Hmm. Yeah. Tells you. Uh, any other thoughts on that story? Uh, no, that's about it right now. All right. Well, I'll tell you about our last sponsor this week, DigitalOcean. If you are not like one of those users that's getting taken advantage of, if you have a little bit of technical inclination, then you can probably see the value in DigitalOcean. It's so awesome. It's a super simple way to spin up a server when you need it as fast as you could possibly imagine with an interface that's better than anybody that's ever done it before and an API that rocks so good so many people in the open source community have created great code for you already. That's DigitalOcean in a nutshell. And then let me just juice it up for you a little bit. they got data centers in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Toronto, Germany. So all over the world. India as well. You can get started in less than 55 seconds. And if you want to go monthly, it's only $5 a month. But check this out. You can also do hourly. You know, I'm just going to go ahead. I'm going to, I'm going to scroll past the fact that you can deploy in seconds. I'm going to scroll past the fact that it says that it's all SSD-based. I'm going to scroll past the team stuff. I'm going to scroll past the 40 gigabit network, uptime, uh, network performance and incredible uptime and the highly available block storage. And I'm going to just scroll down to see how I just went past all that without mentioning it. And I'm just going to scroll down to this part. 
Three cents an hour. That's my go-to rig. You get two gigs of RAM, a two-core processor, a 40-gigabyte SSD, and three terabytes of transfer. You get it set up in no time. You can run a bare system or a completely set up, deployed with all of the applications you'd want. Good to go. They got FreeBSD, Debian, Ubuntu, Fedora, CoreOS, CentOS, and they have an HTML5 console, which allows you to watch it from post to boot and go even further. DigitalOcean.com. Just use our promo code SNAPOcean. Snap Ocean. One word. You apply, go in there, you get the $10 credit, you're good to go. Just create the account first, and then you're set. While you're over at DigitalOcean, also, check out their awesome tutorials. One of my favorite web apps, if you want an example of like the super fanciest web app you've ever seen with live stats, look at NetData. Now, NetData is just a cool open source project, but they have a really nice and comprehensive guide they posted on the 1st of December to set up NetData on Ubuntu 16.04. This is such a cool app. I'm, there you go. Boom. There's a little screenshot of it if you're watching the video version. It is so nice. Real time, super slick. Worth checking out, and they've got a great guide on it. You can spin up a server, you can spin up an entire application stack, or you can just do a container. DigitalOcean.com. Use our promo code, and this is the promo code to give you $10 credit. SnapOcean. It's one word. You apply it to your account. You create the rig. Try out the $5 rig two months for free. Run the three cents. They got even cheaper rigs. And then, as you need it, you can apply block storage, up to 16 terabytes of SSD block storage, and go from there. DigitalOcean.com. Check them out. Use our promo code SNAPOcean. That's one word. Apply it to your account. And a huge thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code SNAPOcean. FreeBSD is rocking on DigitalOcean. Speaking of DigitalOcean, uh, I have one droplet now running FreeBSD, and it is so cool because... Uh, I have not installed the latest version of FreeBSD. I had not done mm-hmm. any of that. And going over DigitalOcean, I don't have to, like, worry about any of that. It is super well, the slick. the install for FreeBSD takes, like, two and a half minutes if you're slow at typing. <laughs> That's very true. That's so it's No, it's huh. just, it is, like, legitimately, I was like, is do, that Do you know how many DigitalOcean droplets I have today? Tell me. 40. <laughs> what? 40, Alan. I thought yes. I thought I was along have, with like, have, I got like a dozen. <laughs> well, we're using the hourly thing. We have 36 temporary ones for this weekend only. Oh, really? Just scaling yes. for a bit? Scale engine scaling? Yep. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, that's a great use. That is really a nice use. 40 of them. Wow. Is it a big event? Well, so we, we have like a regular four and then we have 36 temporary ones. Is it an event? Is there an event going on this weekend? Yes. Ah, DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code SNAPOcean. Well, so uh, this is probably a so good... So if your digital ocean is slow this weekend, it's my fault. <laughs> <laughs> Alan, you're messing it up for everybody else. Uh, so this is probably a good point to mention the BSD Now program, episode 171 just came out. The APU, BSD style. I like that. So mm-hmm. uh, what's this one about besides the APU? Uh, so the APU is basically we have a tutorial on uh, installing OpenBSD on the PC Engine APU2, which is a little embedded router type board, mm-hmm. but that's uh, higher end. Um, then uh, we have a story of one user giving up his Mac and going to a combination of OpenBSD and Arch Linux. Really? Um, yep. Uh, hmm. A bunch of other stories. I don't know. You're looking yeah. at the show notes more than I Yeah, DistroWatch did a review of NAS for free, which you guys yeah. covered some of the highlights uh, for that. Unix in the browser tab, uh, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, so the NAS for free still supports UFS, or even, I don't know why you would, but FAT32. Why not? Um, <laughs> but if, if 
you want to run uh, a NAS on something older that doesn't have enough RAM for ZFS or is 32-bit only. Yeah. And, you know, free NAS is ZFS 64-bit only now. Yeah. If you still need something to run on older hardware, I, I really don't think people should be trying to build reliable NASs out of hardware that old. But if you really want to, NAS for free lets you run FreeBSD, UFS, and all this stuff uh, on your 32-bit hardware. And they also have a version for ARM. Hmm. All covered in episode 171 of the BSD Now program. You can go get the HD version, download it, and this is about the halfway point in the TechSnap program. So just as TechSnap wraps up, I bet your BSD Now download will be done. And that's nice because you'll be like, oh, I was really kind of enjoying that. Hopefully. I'm hoping you're feeling that way. And so you just pick it right up with BSD Now, episode 171. And with the TechSnap news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or pop in that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website. Our first email this week comes in from Mr. Gogo, who is in the chat room right now. Mr. Gogo writes, Hi, Chris and Alan. I've recently set up an open VPN on my home server just the way I like it, but there's one issue. By default, Ubuntu sets the cipher to Blowfish, limiting to just 64 bits of business. There is an AES in the config that is AES 128-CBS. Is this the I best one I could CBC. use? Huh? Say again? I think it's CBC, not CBS. <laughs> not, not CBS. Huh? I know that the larger bits is better, but will that actually affect performance as well? What's the trade-off? Also, what's the most secure way to give users the key? From the IRC, Mr. Coco. Yeah, so uh, we covered about two months ago uh, that all 64-bit ciphers are now known to be weaker than originally thought. And so, yes, uh, I think newer versions of OpenVPN don't default to Blowfish anymore. Uh, I don't think it's Ubuntu that defaults to Blowfish. It was just OpenVPN in general did. Uh, but because uh, Ubuntu you know, freezes versions, uh, I don't know that you'll get the new default until the next version of Ubuntu. Either way, yes, uh, using AES 128CBC uh, is good. Uh, 2D6 would be better, but you probably don't need to worry about it. Um, in particular, nowadays, most CPUs have AES I was just going to say. Which is a in- processor instruction. Yeah, you're going to get hardware and, acceleration. Yeah, you'll get basically, if you have the, the, the uh, kernel module and everything, you'll get hardware acceleration of the AES, and it'll take less CPU time. And that will improve uh, the throughput of your OpenVPN. So it won't be CPU limited. Um, so yes, I would recommend the AES 128CVC uh, mode in uh, OpenVPN. I don't know what some of the other modes it supports are, but AES is probably your best bet uh, because you're going to get the hardware acceleration for it. And okay. yes, uh, you shouldn't use anything 64-bit because uh, as we covered, uh, I think it was about two months ago, all of those are now known to be weaker than originally thought. Mm. All right. Also, pay attention in the roundup where we have upcoming news about OpenVPN. Michael writes in about participating in open source projects. He says, hi, I've been working in IT for over 10 years now, and I would like to participate in some open source projects to give some love back to the projects I've been using for free all this time. Currently, I'm heavily using FreeBSD and Debian Linux with Nginx, Apache, PostgreSQL, PHP, and some other integrated utilities to provide services to me, my customers, my family, and others to get into, to get away and independent from Google and other proprietary service I. What would you think is the best way to contribute to those projects, and where should I start 
to get in touch. I'm also working as a free software developer architect, so also some development work will be possible in my free time. So he's not just talking about money, but possibly code too. How to get started in this area? What do you think? Yeah. Alan? So the the biggest thing is is finding, you know, uh, an area that you want to contribute to. So yes, every, everybody would love to contribute to FreeBSD or whatever, but you have to basically find the area that you're actually passionate about, because uh, it turns out this work is you know, kind of hard and, and, and you really have to be motivated to do it. Uh, and so you really want to pick something that you really care strongly about, uh, or something that, you know, uh, a bit of it that really excites you and, and is going to keep you going for a while. You know, like, uh, remembering back when I did the encrypted bootloader stuff for FreeBSD, I ran into so many roadblocks and got so frustrated so many times, but I really wanted ZFS boot environments to work for everyone. Uh, and so I managed to keep pounding through it and, and get it done. Uh, and then, you know, got to go to Tokyo and explain it to people. It was quite a bit of fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, so definitely you've got to look at what your skills are. Uh, you don't necessarily have to pick the area you're most skilled in. You might want to be the the skill you want to learn might be one of the better places to, to focus on. But uh, you have to kind of pick out what you want to do. Uh, you can always start with documentation and stuff, you know, especially if you're a heavy user of, say, FreeBSD setting up web servers with Nginx, Apache, Postgres, PHP, etc. You probably know where some of the sharp edges are, the little extra bits you have to do to make it work nicely. Uh, and you can work on making it so that it'll be easier for the next guy to get out of the box to go from vanilla FreeBSD to having their Nginx, Apache, Postgres, PHP set up. Uh, or just Writing documentation. There's, we always need more documentation, especially yeah. documentation really requires somebody. It, it works better if it's written by somebody who just learned how to do it because they don't have as many assumptions and they, you know, everything's still fresh in their mind. Well, and, and uh, just to, even, hold even on. me trying to. It's, it's about all, when you're new, you there's so much more that you don't know. You don't come into with yes. all of this knowledge. You, remember, so, you think about all the steps, whereas when. I do. It's like I just know that that's over there. And yeah. I, you know, I, I don't actually think about it. And Might not even mention, be sure you have an SSH key set up on the server before you try to log in because mm-hmm. you, that that's just in your world already done. Yeah. Bunch of things like that. I like uh, that. So, yeah. Uh, you know, whether it's documentation and, you know, uh, it doesn't even have to be official stuff. It still helps the project. Uh, the more mentions there are of FreeBSD on Google when people had to Google, you know, how to set up, run this PHP app on FreeBSD. Uh, having Google results for that that actually work, uh, you know, and aren't from 10 years ago is very useful to us. Uh, but yeah, so you can get uh, started on documentation or you can actually yeah. start on contributing, you know, fixing bugs uh, or just improving things. You know, it doesn't have to be actually broken. It just if it takes five steps to do this and it could take one, uh, you can just build that and submit it. I like that. But I would say definitely uh, try to pick on. Uh, one area you care about most and work on that yes first you can always do other stuff too yes uh but you know I, focus I on the area you care kind of about the most all over the place and yes good point alan really good point that you the open source really is about scratching your itch and make sure it's an itch you actually have so that way you'll stick to it even when you don't feel well even when you're kind of down even when things are busy make it something yeah, that even really when it scratches. doesn't work the first time 
Yeah. Stick to something that will really help people. Russell writes in. It says, hello, Chris and Alan. I'm loving the show and its thoroughness. I thought I'd ask you about encryption. Recently, I lost a thumb drive, a USB key, or whatever you call them around your parts, and thought, why not keep it completely encrypted in case this ever happens to me again? Especially now that 64 gigabytes is only about 15 bucks. That's a lot of data I could potentially lose. I did a little looking around and saw that Veracrypt is the spiritual successor to TrueCrypt, and thought I'd ask the experts. I need to cross. I need a cross-platform. He's about eighty percent Mac, about eighteen percent on Windows, and two percent on Linux and FreeBSD. Although FreeBSD isn't totes necessary because he has yet to convince his school to switch, and they're sticking with Linux as of now. Uh, so he's looking for something to have all of his ba- all of his bases covered. Again, primarily on Mac, eighty percent of the time, with about twenty percent on Windows and about two percent on Linux or FreeBSD. And he'd like to have something he could encrypt and then open up on all of them. Veracrypt yeah. isn't I bad. Veracrypt is probably one of the best as far as portability. Yeah, I don't know that there's a good solution that would work in all of those different places other than Veracrypt. Yeah, I, I kept thinking like, could you? Is it possible to do Lux under FreeBSD? I don't think so, and definitely not under Mac, is it? Yeah, there might. Hmm, I don't know. There might be like Mac I think has views. Might so. be the best. Uh, yeah, I think Veracrypt might be your best bet for that. Yeah, uh, but yeah, what absolutely. I would do is cheat a little bit and make a small, not encrypted partition at the front of the USB stick, and put like the Veracrypt installer on it. So if you're ever at a foreign machine, you have the installer for it on Mac and on PC or whatever. And can just do it. Oh, you're not going to encounter many machines without internet nowadays, so maybe that's not as big I, a deal. I, no, I but. actually think that's that's super smart. If you got 64 gigs to work with, do two partitions. The first one's like a FAT32 mounts on every OS. Put a couple of things you don't care about. Put the Veracrypt installer for a couple of different. Put like a Deb package on there. Put an Exe on there. Put the DMG on there. And 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 then if anybody ever grabs your uh, thumb drive. And I, I understand this is security through obscurity, but if anybody ever grabs your thumb drive and they plug it into their machine, it'll mount. And they'll be, well, this is what's on the thumb drive. There's mm-hmm. a potential. So why not do what Alan's saying is do a little dual partition? It could even be like 256 megabytes. It doesn't have to yeah, be a lot. Just, uh, you know, making sure that whatever machine you end up needing access to this is on, uh, you have access to the tools to decrypt yeah. it as well. Yeah, I actually am pretty comfortable recommending Veracrypt, though. Yeah, Especially uh, as they continue the audits. Really the, only answer uh, to be able to do Mac, PC, and Linux at the same time. Yeah, and that's why we love TrueCrypt on this show. I mean, really. Yep. Yeah. All right. And, and we- it just it makes a lot of sense for a USB, like a thumb drive type scenario. Uh, I, you know, most of the problems they found in the audit of TrueCrypt were with the whole disk encryption yeah. bootloader stuff. Whereas, you know, actually encrypting a virtual volume is is relatively straightforward. Uh, you don't have as much of this extra code on the side that could be the problem. Yeah, yeah, well put. Uh, so, Russell, I would say stick with your Veracrypt instincts, but double down on Alan's suggestion. Do a little partitioning. Make it easy. Make it easy for yourself. But also, it's a, it not only does it give you peace of mind that you'll be able to access that data because the installers are right there on the thumb drive. So that's nice, right? But also, if you're lucky, somebody that's stupid that's looking at it will just think that's the entire thumb drive. Yeah, and, like if you're going for that, I would you know hide the installers a little bit and – and make it look make like some folder structure. Yeah, <laughs> I was kind of thinking of that too. <laughs> you definitely make it look like you know this way. If you're going through the airport with it and they want to look at it, 
Uh, yeah. They see some files that are perfectly Put innocent. some naked ladies on there. Put some recipes on there. Put some spreadsheets Depends on there. Depends what country you're going to, what you might want to put on there. But yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. That's true. That's true. I was thinking about Texas. All right. That's all the feedback for this week. Please send us some more emails. There's just a few more episodes left of Alan and Chris, and we'd love to answer your questions. But you can keep sending them in because Wes and Dan are standing by, and they're already reading your emails and preparing to answer. So send them all in. The TechSnap crew, which is bigger than ever, will be answering them. Go over to Jupiter Bride. Podcasting.com slash contact, choose TechSnap from the drop down and submit your question. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup are stories that didn't fit towards the top of the show, but we still want to talk about them and give you some links to read even more after the show. And some of these links came from our subreddit at techsnap.reddit.com. How about that fanciness? And uh, I'm not sure about this first one. It probably did. Uh, <laughs> but this is so on point with what we've talked about over the years that I had to, yep. I had to include it. Millions have been exposed to malvertising that hid in the attack code in banner pixels. Manipulated images are almost impossible to detect by the untrained eye. Researchers from antivirus provider ESET said that Stenago, which they've dubbed as the campaign that dates back to 2014, uh, was used. Malicious script is concealed in the alpha channel that defines the transparency of pixels, making it extremely difficult for even a sharp-eyed ad network to detect. Hides in the alpha channel, Alan. <laughs> ah, so they hide the payload in the graphic, and then the code in the JavaScript that extracts it doesn't set off any alarms. Mm-hmm. That is cheeky. <laughs> I read, you know, and I see the tweet the other day. It's like we, I don't run ad blocker on your site. Uh, because I want things for free, I run Adblock on your site because I don't want viruses. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. All right. How about an admin calendar for sysadmins? Yes. Uh, this one is uh, quite good. They've uh, talked about a number of different things. I guess there's a new one up there today already, but uh, lots of uh, interesting stuff. You know, they talk about uh, change management, uh, Jenkins, um, you know, mm-hmm. a different post every day with lots of detail about uh interesting sysad many things i like it i like it make it part of your holiday tradition yeah, this is a you know devops sec stuff and all kinds of stuff good news for open vpn users potentially mm-hmm. uh, dr matthew green is financing an audit of open vpn 2.4 well no the private internet access fund is paying dr matthew green to do the audit oh, oh okay thank you thank you yeah so uh, if you're running open vpn.24 around there you're going to get Basically, some uh, some benefit from this overall yeah, project. They're going to do an audit, and that will lead to newer versions of OpenVPN that are even better than what we have now. Because <laughs> Alan is correctly assuming there will be vulnerabilities found. Krebs talks about researchers finding a fresh fodder for IoT attacks. Yeah, it turns out Sony uh, makes web security cameras, uh, and they have about 80 different models, and all of them have two hard-coded users built into them. Oh. One called Debug, and one called Pramana, <laughs> which I'm guessing was the name of some company that Sony bought the camera technology from. That's exactly but, uh, right. Either way, uh, the I forget how to say it again. What? The botnet. Oh, uh, Maria, 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 <laughs> Mario. <laughs> anyway. Yes. The stupid botnet with the silly name uh, now has this in its search pattern. 
and is uh, finding all the cameras. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, this will make you feel better. HP is shutting and down. Well, um, so the Sony cameras, what's especially bad is these are used in a lot of like really big enterprises with fat internet connections and, uh, you know, uh, government installations and stuff like that. So probably worse than the other one. How about this, though? Does this make you feel better? HP is going to shut down default FTP and telnet access to their network printers. In yep. 2016. Starting, starting with ones that are sold after this announcement, they won't have FTP turned on by default. So the <laughs> billions of HP printers already out there, no hope for them. But Damn all it. new ones will be I better. thought that was going to be our positive story. All right. How about this one? A flash bugs. Well, is dominating the oh flash bug oh, damn it there's no there's no spin in yes. this one okay. flash bugs yeah. dominate the exploit it. kit <laughs> landscape <laughs> uh, six of the top ten vulnerabilities used in yeah. exploit kits during 2016 were in flash so exploit kits adopted the Adobe bugs in the past year including Neutrino Angler Magnitude Rig Nuclear Pack Spartan and Hunter malware kits all uh, of the vulnerabilities that are most popular, six of the ten most popular vulnerabilities were in Flash. Oh, not too shocking. A lot of uh, a lot has improved in Flash in the last year, mostly thanks to Google's Project Zero. Uh, so maybe next year will be better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This next one, I, it, it is a major heads up for anybody that's watched the Linux Action Show because we have featured this application before. AirDroid. AirDroid, for the last six months, has made a... Anyone who's running it vulnerable to code execution attacks. AirDroid, which has been downloaded 10 million times, or maybe 50 million, depending on which stats you look at, uh, has unfortunately had a security hole. Attackers who are on the same network can exploit the weakness to push fraudulent updates or view potentially sensitive user information, including special identification information, subscriber identification information, things that are unique to each phone. You just have to be on the same network, and you could leverage the vulnerabilities. Um, moreover, the attacker could also see the user sense information, such as the IME, the IMSI, and so forth. Mm, and I feel bad because we've talked about this app before in the Linux Action Show. And, of course, anytime you install something that allows you to remotely administer a box over yes, the you're, network. You're basically purposely installing a rat. So make sure it's locked down mm-hmm. and trust the code in the rat. This next story got a lot of the folks in our audience's attention this week. Crooks can guess a Visa card details in six seconds by querying a lot of websites at once. Yeah, so this is, this is more when you have some of the information but not all of it. So, for example, in this video, they have uh, some of the bits of the credit card from, say, a hacked Amazon account. So they know, like, the last four digits or maybe the first four and last four, but not the middle. Uh, and they could guess on a whole, because with the uh, LUN algorithm that credit cards use, the last, very last digit is a check digit. And so you can eliminate a lot of the possible combinations because they're just not valid credit card numbers. And then you could just try a bunch of different credit cards uh, until you find the one that's uh, hmm. that's legitimate. Yeah, this has people freaked out, Alan. Uh, now, so for that one, it... It's hard to set off the fraud alert things because there's a lot of different websites and each one is trying a different card number. Now, for some of the other ones, they can guess, say, the expiration date. So if they know your credit card number but not the expiration date, then they could just try all the, There's only 60 possible uh, uh, credit cards only ever valid for 60 months. So uh, if you assume that maybe it's not going to go quite that far in the future and cut that in half and only 
you know, start, it's, it's gotta be expiring this month or later <laughs> and then just use 60 different websites and try, you know, uh, each date on a different one, then eventually one of them is going to work and you're going to know the expiration date. It says uh, in the article that MasterCards are not vulnerable to the attack because MasterCard centralized network detects the guessing yeah, attack so, for after fewer than 10 attempts. Right. So the way MasterCard works, uh, all the, the, they don't have kind of this extra middle layer. So all the requests go directly to MasterCard. Uh, and so they notice the, like after 20 attempts, they'll start blocking things. Mm. Uh, now that's only if you're working on one individual card, if you're trying multiple cards, it's harder for them to do it because you're coming from a lot of different websites. So it's not, they don't see the pattern the same, but when you're trying to guess the CVV, uh, or the expiration date of a card, uh, that can be important. Now, so with Visa, they work a little bit different, and oftentimes, you know, for your card, it will go directly to your bank. And so they left it up to each individual bank to implement their security stuff, and a lot of them didn't. Uh, and that's why the Visas are more vulnerable in this case. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, it really means that if you have the credit card number and the expiration date, but not the CVV, because the database you hacked did it properly and didn't store the CVV, well, it turns out if you have access to a lot of websites that uh, accept credit cards, you could guess, you know, try every different combination uh, on a different website until one of them worked. And then you would, you would know which one is the right one. Hmm. And then you could go and use the card. Hmm. Hmm. Microsoft is going to bring arm emulation or something to this degree. Uh, check this out. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Microsoft's going to bring around. x86 emulation to arm devices. Uh, sort of, sort of like, sort of like you probably thought about they would have done originally with Windows RT when they did Windows 8 back in the day for ARM well, processors. Well, that was the plan all along. It just turns out it was harder than they thought. Yeah, well, they're going to do a partnership with Colloquam. They've, Colloquam, they've already been talking. I guess the partnership's established, but not everything's been worked out quite yet. But essentially, via a partnership with Qualcomm, which probably means there's something at the processor level, you'll be able to run x86 code on Windows ARM devices. So I don't know what they're doing. Using at the, the image activator... On FreeBSD, if you try to run an ARM binary on FreeBSD x86, it fires up QMU user mode and runs that one application through QMU's emulation. I'm hmm. guessing you could do something similar on Windows. Yeah, I'm reading. I'm trying to figure out what Qualcomm is doing, and it just says there's a partnership, but it doesn't really say what's Paying happening. Some of the developer or something. I don't know what's happening. What's happening at the CPU level? We don't know. We don't know. Well, Lenovo but says this, that this is how FreeBSD allows you to build. Uh, packages for, say, your ARM, uh, your Raspberry Pi on your regular x86. Lenovo says that if you value your server, you should probably block well, Microsoft. the register says this. Uh, but yeah, so it okay. turns out on Lenovo's <laughs> yeah. server line, uh, the next Windows update could screw up when mixed with their current UEFI firmware, and you need to install the EFI firmware update first before you install the Windows server update Otherwise, your machine will stop. Building. Okay. All right. So Lenovo has advised sysadmins to say, hey, before you update with Microsoft's latest November patches, first install our, first install our, our, our UEFI patch first. Get that installed from our website, then do the November update. So they're not really saying don't install the November update. They're saying before you install the November update, install our patch. Why can't this be all be done through Windows Update? Why can't the Lenovo update come down through Windows well, Update? Well, this isn't a software update. It's an EFI firmware update. So? It's like reflashing the BIOS. I don't care. I really, it's I don't not care. Something you do from Windows Update, basically. Ah. Uh, apparently, it affects 19 configurations of its uh, XM5 and M6 rack servers, as well as the X6 systems. Uh, 
And yeah, um, Microsoft Security Update MS16-140 for Windows Server 2012, 2012 R2, and 2016 uh, will cause the machines to crash if they don't have the UEFI firmware update applied first. Okay. Good to know. <laughs> Lots of Linux server servers are going to have problems. Interesting, they say replacing the system board will not fix the issue. I don't know how that. They must mean replacing it with another Lenovo system board. That's yeah, yeah. Uh, this one's good. Uh, before you download your next Adam Sandler movie, consider this: an Oregon district court has sided with a wrongfully accused man who was sued. For allegedly downloading a pirated copy of the Adam Sandler movie, The Cobbler, according to the court's recommendation, the man is entitled to more than $17,000 in compensation as a result of the filmmaker's over-aggressive and unreasonable tactics for coming after him for pirating Adam Sandler's movie. uh, Who's being falsely (laughs) accused of downloading a torrent, uh, getting paid instead of screwed. That feels good. Uh, In particular, it seems like the movie studios hire some company to go and find the offenders and they don't care about false positives or whatever and just flag everybody they can and and you know they're getting smacked for it finally alan don't listen to the anarchists in our chat room the crazy people who are in irc right now because the chat room is not dead my friend it it lives on it lives on irc actually freebsd is probably a great example of this there's a ton of work getting done via irc for the freebsd project right yeah, the FreeBSD project's been using IRC since the beginning, and and we don't really plan to change. Uh, most IRC, most uh, older open source projects I know use IRC. Some of the newer ones only do other stuff, but yeah, real time communication that's passive is very valuable. IRC JB Live has an IRC at jblive.tv. Anyway, uh, th- th- this particular story is uh, a story from CBC Radio where they interviewed some of the people uh mostly it's just talking about you know, from the perspective of somebody not in it it's very odd that there's chat rooms full of people that are willing to help people with their it problems and that they hang around and use an internet chat protocol from the 1980s hey if it works alan yeah if it works. Exactly. I know you're all about that slack, but hey, IRC. Hey, this is good news for you. Uh, Amazon's got an AWS Canada region. Canada Central, they're calling it. Are you excited? Why are they calling Canada Central when it's almost, it's like as East Coast as New York? Yeah, well. Well, it's, obviously, East in Canada could means maritimes, but yeah. Central, when you say Central Canada, that's the prairies. Not, yeah, yeah, and not I don't think that's... <laughs> But that's what they—that's exactly what they announcing the AWS Canada in parentheses Central Region, which the only the way I take that to mean is that they're going to have probably one on the West Coast and one further on the East Coast. That's what that means. Uh, <laughs> as far as I know, I couldn't spin up instances on that today. Well, then that's no fun. But it's definitely coming. Oh, the TR sixty four. When you sh- when shoddy implementations come back to haunt you. Oh yeah, talking about yes. speaking so about Maria more about or this, whatever. Uh, that you know uh, the bug in the modems uh, shipped and routers shipped by the ISPs in Germany and and Ireland and so on that caused all these problems in the last couple of weeks. Uh, this story digs into how the protocol came to be. And in particular, how the protocol spec says that it's only meant to be used on the LAN side, not on the WAN side, and how it's supposed to require a username to access all of it except for certain read-only bits. And there, the username is optional. And then uh, that it should, but doesn't require, uh, having SSL. 
Uh, but turns out when people implemented this on their modems, they put it on the WAN side with no authentication of any kind and wide open. And it had a bug where you could run arbitrary commands if you, you know, malformed the XML. Jeez, no kidding. Coming back to haunt you. Holy crap. Jeez. The TR-64. I I thought that was one that was really easy to to reflash, too. It looks like a piece of gear that I had for a long uh, time. TR-064 is the protocol used for configuring oh just not not the model in this picture here okay no. okay no uh, the tr064 is a protocol uh set up by the dsl forum the specification document how- addresses security early on in section four wherein it states that access to any action allows configuration changes the cpe must be password protected yes <laughs> I turns out it. it wasn't and you can just disable the firewall <laughs> and that's the, the fact that they made it run on both lan and wan but just firewalled it off on the WAN side instead of making it not bind to that interface. Just stupid. Just so dumb. Dumb. Not even not even like lazy, just dumb. That's just a bad practice. Why are you going and building a firewall if you don't even know how to set that stuff up? What's the matter with you? All right, send your questions in techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or go over to the contact page at jupiterbroadcasting.com. And don't forget, we stream this episode live, or all these shows live, over at jblive.tv on Thursdays. It begins at 1 p.m. Pacific, which is... 4 p.m. Eastern, which is 2100 UTC. <laughs> I'll go with that. You can just go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar and get it converted to your local time zone. If there's a story you didn't hear us cover, well consider just sending it to the, to the subreddit. I mean, yep. Maybe you'll Let get it in. It could always be in the subreddit, techsnap.reddit.com, and your questions at the contact page. All right. That is the end of this week's episode. If there's anything else you want to know more about, find the links in our show notes. Subscribe to the RSS feeds to get next week's episode. And thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap. And we'll see you right back here next week. 